Good morning, church. Will you please stand as we read from the book of Psalms? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. And then in verse 7 it says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And church, it is a good thing that we worship a holy and righteous God one who can't overlook evil in the world, but who has sent a solution to, to solve the problem of evil in our hearts. So let's worship that God this morning. the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the king of this is amazing grace this is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross you laid down your
Oh 
Have a seat, church. Come on up, Miss LaQuandra. She's going to lead us in prayer this morning. 
Amen. Thank you, Miss Laquandra. Well, good morning, church. This time, if you've got a kiddo who is third grade and under, we, they participate in the first half of our service with us uh, on a weekly basis, routinely singing with us, but then we dismiss them for their lesson down the hall uh, for w- as we move into a time of our sermon here. And so if you would like them to go to that class, you can see Miss Lindsay and Miss Allison in the back of the room in the blue shirts. They're going to follow them down the hall there for their lesson this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've joined us today. Uh, when you came in, you should have found a card like this one somewhere around you in one of the seats where you're seated. Uh, on one side of that card is a place for some information about you, so we can send you some information about us. And the other side of that is a place for any prayer requests that you may have. There are ways that we can pray with you or for you. It would be our honor to do that. Uh, if you do fill out one of these cards, there's a box at that kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out, or you could also access that same form on our website at RedeemerRC.com and fill out that same information there. Before we open the scriptures together this morning, I just want to update you real briefly on the land that we have under contract. Uh, The survey was ordered this last week. Um, We expect it to be in within the next week or so, and so hopefully we'll have that in hand and be able to give that to the design build firm so they can have a more accurate representation of the property as they begin to lay out a site plan for us. Just wanted to give you an update on that. Thank you for those of you who have uh, either begun to give towards the next five or have continued to give toward the next five generously and sacrificially. It's making an impact. It's making a difference. Um, and we're able now to move forward with this property if the Lord opens all those doors to be able to have a down payment to put on it. But as I said last week, wouldn't it be awesome or amazing Uh, to see God provide even more than what we've asked for or could have imagined in order to be able to move forward a little faster when it comes to going vertical out of the ground with a facility. So uh, thank you if you are giving. Uh, If you're not, um, pray about that. What would the Lord have you do to help us move forward in that process if you're a member of our church? Uh, If you've got a Bible, open with me to Psalm 75 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 75, we open a new series of messages entitled Exhale, Exhale. You know, we live in a world that is somewhat confounding at times because of sin. You know, every day we're breathing in uh, the reality of life in a fallen, broken, distorted world. We're inhaling real heartache at times, aren't we? Real pain, real suffering, real frustrations, real disappointment, real sin. You know, and I was thinking this week in one 24-hour news cycle, okay, there are enough shockwaves to send a shiver down the spine of every human being in one 24-hour news cycle. When you turn on the TV and hear of another mass shooting or you hear of war raging on other continents or you hear about higher prices and the escalation of inflation or you hear about shortages of food and shortages of formula for infants, it leads us to wonder how much longer this can go on. How much longer can this be sustained? We are constantly inhaling in a globalized society these global issues day after day after day. And it seems that at times the world seems to be somewhat tottering, doesn't it? We're inhaling these broken realities. And if it were just global issues, and maybe we could handle that, we could distance ourselves from it, but at times it's also inhaling the brokenness of personal issues in our lives as well. As we take in news from doctors, as we take in news from our financial advisors, as we take in news from our kids' teachers at times that is difficult to process. When tragedy strikes closer to home, it's hard to distance ourselves from it. You can't turn that network off. You can't shut down that website when it strikes close to home, when you lose someone you love, when you're abused by someone that you trusted, or you get passed over because of your integrity and someone else is promoted because of their savviness and the way they can cut corners and bend rules. We inhale those personal broken realities as well. However, the world we live in at the same time simultaneously is also beautiful because of God's grace. Wars do come to an end. And guess what? On those battle-scarred fields, flowers will once again bloom. Families of victims extend forgiveness to the gunmen who took their loved ones' lives. Unexpected bonuses show up at the end end of the year convocations. Some 
some who walk through the painful valley of death with close friends and loved ones come to learn how emotional wounds that are opened up through loss are healed very much the same way physical wounds are through scabbing and through scarring over the course of time as groups of people heal together as they've lost and grieved alongside of one another. When someone is in need and you see someone else sacrificially stepping out to meet that need with something that they have, it's a beautiful thing to see. The world's filled with both broken and beautiful realities. All day, every day. And the life of our emotions, church, how we feel about those things is sometimes complex, isn't it? And God designed them as such. And because God has designed them, it only makes sense that a whole book of the Bible would give voice to them. That brings us to the book of Psalms. In the Psalms, you have authors who are inhaling the everyday realities of life, both the beauty and the brokenness, and then they're exhaling theology in response to it. That's what you have throughout the book of the Psalms. Inhaling of reality, exhaling of theology to either express the emotions or counteract them and respond to them. Now the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 ancient poems, songs, prayers. They come from different periods of Israel's history. Some scholars would say over the course of maybe a thousand years of Israel's history. Many of these poems would eventually be used by the choirs and the worship leaders in the temple in Jerusalem. But they weren't necessarily written for that expressed purpose. At some point, following Israel's exile to Babylon, these 150 poems are collected together and compiled in an order in which we have them today. And as we spend the next three months working our way through selected psalms, obviously in three months you can't get through 150 of them, okay? But through selected psalms over these next three months, as we consider the landscape of the forest that is this book, there's some distinctive features that will emerge. There's various types of psalms. There's all types of subgenres and categories, but there's two major categories of psalms. There are psalms of lament and there are psalms of praise. Right, there's various subcategories to those, but those two broad categories. And the, psalm, the book of Psalms starts off with more psalms of lament. And as you get towards the end, it ends with more psalms of praise. So it's this, this trajectory that it's moving from lament to praise. In other words, from grief to joy as you make your way through the 150 psalms that are collected for us. And I believe there's a reason for that. Another author by the name of John Collins, he's no relation to me, I promise. I know my family. This didn't come from any of them. Okay? He said, the Psalms do not simply express emotions when sung in faith. They actually shape the emotions of the godly. And here's what this means, church. The Psalms do not only give voice to our lament, and what is broken about the world, but they also shape how we view what ought to be broken in the world. They not only give voice to our praises and our thanksgivings about the blessings that we enjoy, but they also shape what we should praise about God. What we should thank God for. They teach us what we should lament. They teach us what we should praise and why we should praise. They shape They shape our understanding of what is broken and what is beautiful. They shape that. Not just express it, but they shape it. And more than anything this summer, as we work our way through some of these psalms, I want that shaping to happen to me. I want it to happen to you. I want it to happen to us as a church collectively together as we inhale our realities and exhale theology to be shaped by the psalms, have our emotions shaped by these ancient poems. Now that brings us to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. It's our text for this morning, and we'll pick up reading in verse 1 and read the entire psalm together today. Psalm 75, beginning in verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, 
It is I who keeps steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment. Putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine mixed well. And He pours, it, pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And this is God's Word. Many interpreters would say that Psalms 73, 74, and 75 are tied to a time related to Israel's exile in Babylon in order to give hope to God's people who were in a foreign land. To hope that He was still ordering the events of human history and still ordering the events of their lives. In short, that God was still ruling, that God was still on His throne, that He had not abdicated it, He had not delegated that responsibility to anyone else, but that He was still in control. And this particular psalm, it starts with a word of thanksgiving about the nearness of God in exile. And then it shifts to words of warning to the proud and to the power hungry. And then it ends with a commitment to praise the God of Jacob for his execution of justice. And this psalm, listen church, it includes both the words of the author speaking in the first person about their response to God, but it also includes God speaking in the first person about his actions and intentions. And his execution of justice. And so what does this psalm teach us that we ought to be exhaling as we inhale the realities of life in a fallen, sinful, broken world? And I got two points for you this morning, and that's it. Okay? Alright, and the first one, the first one is this. This psalm teaches us that we ought to praise God for His justice. Praise God for His justice. In verse 9, the psalmist begins to close the poem with these words, but I will declare it forever. We'll sing praises to the God of Jacob. Now the question upon which this whole point turns is this, what is the it in verse 9 that the psalmist will declare forever that would lead to the singing of God's praises? Now the word it is, you know this from your English classes, is a pronoun, so it needs an antecedent. It needs something that, or that, that, that it refers to in the text. And what the word it refers to in this particular context, it refers to what the author has been writing about in verses 2 to 8. God judging with equities to steady the earth and executing judgment through the cup of foaming wine to cut down the wicked and lift up the righteous. That's what the word it refers to. God's execution of justice through His judgment upon the proud, the haughty, or the wicked. And this is what elicits a response of praise from the psalmist. But this is hard for you and I. Because we live in a Western culture where we do not talk about the justice of God. We do not talk about God's judgment very often. We talk much about God's love, and we should. We talk about God's comforting presence in the time of trials and storms, and we should. We talk about the grace and mercy of God, and we should. However, we don't spend much time reflecting upon the justice of God. Listen, when you turn on Christian radio stations, when you leave from this parking lot today, you're not going to hear songs blaring over KLTY praising God for His judgment and His justice. You don't hear those kinds of songs. They don't play well. They don't sell a lot of records, okay? Or have a lot of downloads in our particular culture. Because when we hear that God is a just God who judges the wicked, we almost recoil a little bit inside. Right? Because of the culture in which we live, the waters in which we swim, the popular notion in our culture. Here's one of the reasons we recoil from that. So we've got to spend a little bit of time on a practical reason why we ought to praise God for His justice before we get to these biblical ones that the author outlines. See, there's a popular notion in our culture 
that if you have a judging God, you will be an aggressive person. You will go out and attack people to take power or exercise revenge over those who have hurt you. However, there's a theologian from Croatia by the name of Miroslav Volf. And he said this, he said that if you really think, uh, uh, that if you really think it through, it's quite the opposite, actually. Listen to what he has to say. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West. But imagine for a moment speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them as you speak is this, we should not retaliate. Why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? I say this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, that idea would invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. See, without a sense of ultimate divine justice that is inevitable, that will come, we will be sucked into endless cycles of revenge and retaliation and retribution in our lives, personally and nationally, and on a global scale. See, are you going to say to that father whose daughter has just been abused and killed, violence doesn't really solve anything? (laughs) Or what kind of society would we live in if everyone just took the law into their own hands? Right? For someone whose daughter has been abused and killed, those arguments do not hold weight. No, you've got to say to that individual, you've got to say to them, judgment is coming and there is a judge, but he is not you. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So that's a practical reason that the justice of God is, he ought to be praised for his justice and his his judgment. But here's some biblical ones that come right out of Psalm 75. The first one is this. God's justice is applied with equity. With equity. In verse 2, we're told that there is a set time at which God will judge all peoples with equity. That word equity means fairness. It means uprightness. It's the opposite of partiality. So God's not going to judge as a partial judge, right? He's going to take a back seat or backbench bribe from his cousin to get him off of the DUI charge that was brought against him because they grew up in the same county, right? That's not the kind of God that, uh, judge that God is, right? He has no conflicts of interest when it comes to exercising his judgment and dispensing justice. No, God's going to judge, and every judgment that is rendered will be right, it will be fair, and it will be just. It will be equitable, No one will ever be able to say and raise their fist at God and say he is an unjust judge. He is a dishonest judge. He is a corrupt judge. Because truth be known, listen church, every human being who has ever walked the face of the earth does now exist or will one day be born deserves to be under God's judgment. It's only the grace of God that saves those who would place their confidence in Christ, that that God's judgment fell upon another for them. See, everyone's going to receive judgment. It's either going to fall on you or it's fallen on Christ, one of the two. But God can never be accused of being corrupt or unfair or inequitable because every verdict that he renders is right. So God's justice is applied with equity. Second, God's justice steadies the world. Listen, have you ever spun a top? <laughs> right? You remember as a kid spinning a top, right? Uh, some of you kids are like, what is a top? Do they have an app for that on a phone, right? But have you ever spun a top? And as soon as you spin that top, it begins to, sp- I mean, it, the revel- it's rep- 
revolution after revolution. It's spinning so fast on the floor that it looks like it's just standing completely upright. Right? But as it spins across the floor and it begins to lose momentum, because invariably, right, it, it's going to slow down. Okay? It's, as it begins to slow down, it begins to spin a little more widely. Okay? It doesn't look like it's standing straight up any longer. It begins to wobble some. And then as it continues to slow down, the revolutions lose their, their, their speed, and it no longer is wobbling. It's kind of tottering back and forth. That is what it feels like the world is doing at times. And perhaps over the course of these last two and a half years, that is what it's felt like this globally the world is doing, and perhaps even your life personally is doing. It's like that top that's losing speed and just beginning to totter back and forth like there's no stability left in it whatsoever. However, the psalmist says, when it feels like the world is on the verge of collapse, when the earth totters, when it feels unstable, when it fill, you're filled with anxiety and with worry and with fear because of all that you see and all that you feel, it is God in His justice that the text tells us in verse 3 who keeps steady the pillars of the earth. Right? The pillars, the foundational pillars of the earth. It's like God has them in His hand. So that they will not break, they will not bend, they will not fall. And the way that he steadies it is through the execution of judgment. Through the exercising of justice. God is the one who maintains order in the earth by always doing what is right. He establishes the situation that is needed for life to flourish. He renders judgment at the time that he appoints. Right? The age-old question, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Listen, there is a time that is coming some point in the future and every person who has ever lived can look, if they would look back through the window of time, could see it in their past, right? You see all these wicked individuals who have risen up, all these wicked ideas that have emerged as well. And at some point, they were all either destroyed their societies, right? Or God destroyed them. In judgment, as he executed justice to keep the earth from collapsing. Right? His justice is applied with equity and it steadies the world. But third, God's justice, it cuts down the wicked and lifts up the righteous. In verses 4 to 5, we're warned against boastfulness against lifting ourselves up or speaking with a haughty neck. To speak with a haughty neck is to speak in defiance of God. And then we're given two reasons that we're warned against this. The first one is this. All right? Is that we're told in verses 6 and 7, the reason you ought not to lift yourself up is because it is God who lifts up and it is God who cuts down. Now, the horn shows up in this passage, Right? The horn, right? Don't raise your own horn, right? It's not talking about a trumpet, okay? It's talking about the horn oftentimes of a wild animal, like a wild ox or like a big longhorn cow, right? That doesn't sound appropriate. Like a, like a bull, right? Long horns, okay? It's emerged like, you know, three, four, five feet worth of a rack coming off of the head, I remember a few weeks ago, we were driving down to Highway 205 from our house, and we took the back roads um, back through Blackland and down that direction, and we turned the corner, and I see this massive, majestic longhorn out in a field in front of someone's house, and I look to my wife, and I say, can you believe how still that thing is standing, right? It's not moving. They have no gate around. There's no, it's just standing there. She's like, that's a statue, you dummy. But the horns just emerged off of it. The horns of those majestic animals are signs of power or signs of honor, signs of strength, signs of victory. Right? And the majestic, those, those wild oxen of the author's day would have had those horns, and that's what, they, that's what they symbolized. Power, strength, victory, might, and honor. And God is saying, don't raise your own horn. Don't exalt yourself Right to positions of power. Don't exalt yourself to places of honor. Don't exalt yourself in thinking that you are strong and strong in and of yourself. Right, but rather adopt a humble posture. 
Right? Because power and honor doesn't come from worldly powers or worldly honors. He says, don't look to the east to be lifted up. Don't look to the west to be lifted up. Right? It, Israel had a bad habit okay, of always looking to make a political alliance with someone, a nation stronger, more prestigious, more powerful than them in the ancient world. And he says, don't look to, so, to another nation, don't look to another earthly, worldly power to make a political alliance so that you might be raised up because God is the one who raises and God is the one who raises. R-A-Z-E-S, burns to the ground in his judgment. It is God who lifts up and God who cuts down. The second reason we're told that we ought not be boastful or haughty or proud is because in verse 8 we're told that there is a cup of judgment waiting for those who speak with haughty necks, those who are boastful and lift themselves up, those who defy God and neglect His order. There's a cup, he says, with foaming wine, well mixed. In other words, it's not a cup of wine that is like, like just placid on top, right? where you can almost see your reflection in the depth of the color. But it is a foaming wine that is stirred and mixed and frothy because it's this cup of God's anger against sin, the cup of God's wrath against those who would rebel against Him and stick their necks out in defiance against Him. And this image of the cup of God's judgment shows up throughout the Scriptures. And the final place that it shows up is in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 to 10, where we read these words, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The cup is God's judgment ready to pour out upon those who would live in defiance and shake their fist against him. And in verse 10, God says, And all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, all their self-exaltation, all their self-boasting, all their pride will come be, be, to be cut to the ground. He says, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. And church, he does this by exercising justice, by raising rulers and toppling them, by raising people and lowering people. We see this clearly throughout the Bible as well, and no place more clearly than in Mary's song in Luke chapter 1 where she sings these words. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. The psalmist says, if you want to be cut down, then exalt yourself. But if you want to be raised up, then humble yourself. Live in dependence upon God, not defiance against Him. Humble yourself before Him. You know, the folk classic that was popularized by Johnny Cash, God's going to cut you down. You can see the words of this psalm echoed in the lyrics of that song. Listen to what he says. He says, you can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Go and tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's going to cut him down. Tell him that God's going to cut him down. Well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's down in the dark will be brought to light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. That's the justice of God at an appointed time. And at an appointed time, He draws all wickedness to an end at an appointed time. Right? It's like God has a notification reminder in His eye calendar, okay? That at this moment, right, this regime, this person, this nation, this culture, is going to be cut down because of their continued defiance against me. There's an appointment for that. 